Welcome to Poetry Lectures, featuring talks by poets, scholars, and educators, presented by PoetryFoundation.org. In this program, we hear a conversation between two poets who live in the U.S., but share a cultural heritage based in Africa. Kwame Dawes speaks with Matthew Shinoda about his poetry, his identity as an Egyptian-American, and poetry of the African diaspora. Matthew Shinoda is an award-winning writer who has taught and lectured extensively in the fields of ethnic studies and creative writing. He was born in the U.S. to Egyptian parents. He is currently Associate Dean of the School of Fine and Performing Arts at Columbia College in Chicago. Kwame Dawes was born in Ghana, but spent most of his childhood in Jamaica, a place that figures prominently in his writing. He has written over a dozen books of poetry, as well as children's books, fiction, nonfiction, and books on reggae. Dawes is a professor at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, where he teaches African, Caribbean, and African-American literature. This conversation took place at the Poetry Foundation in Chicago in March 2013. We begin with Matthew Shinoda describing his family's background in Egypt and how he identifies as a member of the Egyptian Coptic community. First and foremost is family and lineage. Both of my parents are born and raised in Egypt, grew up there, immigrated to the United States where I was born. I have always had connections with the community, both in diaspora and in Egypt. My father was the eldest of eight and was the only one of his family who left. So his entire family remains in Egypt, and I've always had a connection moving back and forth as a child and and throughout my life between wherever we lived in the United States and back to our our community in Egypt. So I think in that sense, there's a direct familial lineage. I'm fascinated, of course, and it, it really emerges in your work because there's a kind of, I mean, the, the Coptic dynamic, the Coptic position within the, the larger fabric of Egyptian society is a specific, has a very specific place. And, and you own that as a part of your labeling and your sense of self. And even in your work, there's, a kind, there's an engagement with it. So what does Coptic mean to you? The word Coptic literally means Egyptian, and it, it comes from the word for Egypt, Kemet, or Kimi, in the Coptic language. The word is Kimi, which literally means black land and is a reference to the fertile soil of Egypt. So the, the word's roots are very Egyptian in that sense and, and are part of an evolution of language from, from hieroglyphic into the Coptic language. And then through Greek and into English to the word we use today, Coptic. So that's just the kind of brief history of the word. But the community itself is often framed in in religious terms, although I think it's obviously a bit deeper than that. We make up roughly 10% of the population. We trace ourselves back through the line of ancient Egyptians into the present, as many Egyptians do. But it's a, it's a pre-Islamic community. It is an ancient Christian community, one of the oldest Christian communities in the world, along with the, the Coptic community of Ethiopia, which is where I think there, there is a, a very specific kind of link. But because of our minority status within our own home, it takes on its own identity. Of course, Copts are Egyptians as any Muslim is an Egyptian. Um, But there's a difference there because we read our lives through certain religious narratives and understandings. I I think there's a difference in how we view ourselves. And because we are a minority community, while at the same time seeing ourselves as indigenous of a place, there's a very complicated relationship that there is a, 
a dominant religious ideology that exists within the country of Egypt that we don't fit into yet. We, like the Nubians, are an indigenous group of the place. Um, and so I, I think this complicates things and certainly shapes my own identity and, and, and makes for, you know, a very interesting space of exploration as a writer, I think. But one, one of the other things that I, I think is perhaps important in that history is thinking about this idea of indigeneity mm -hmm. and what this might mean and what it means to be a minority in one's own indigenous space. And many people deal with this in many different facets and, and all of the various ethnic groups around Africa and the rest of the world have their own relationship to this idea. And I think that that's something I'm very interested in an exploration of in my work and what that means to be connected to a physical space, to have a very long history there, but to also not always feel like you're part of the center of the very space in which you are from. And I, I continue to bring up the religious piece, not because I think it's the defining piece, but Egypt is, is a land that has been engaged in spiritual practice for as long as anyone can recall. I mean, the ancient Egyptian texts are all spiritually and religiously based texts. And so the idea of belief in the country of Egypt has, from ancient times until the present, continues to be a very central and important way of how one shapes their identity and their relationship to the world around them. So we've done the bit that connects you and that roots you in, in, in Egypt, and we'll get to the idea of Africa and the, the idea of um, that relationship. But then there's the diaspora idea, right? The idea that you are also rooted and comfortably or uncomfortably located in the context of America. You're an American poet. You're an American person, an American individual. So how do you then regard your position then when it comes to talking about nationality, when it comes to talking about ideas of home and so on? Well, I, I think that that's an incredible question and one I think particularly as a poet that becomes important, perhaps even more so than my own individual identity as a human being, which I think allows in certain ways for more fluidity. I think it's much easier as a person to be kind of globally rooted um, but as a poet, you come out of certain traditions. And because I write in the English language in the American context, I'm very much a part of that trajectory. The work around me influences me, obviously. The, the work that I'm doing, I hope, influences the, the conversation as well within American poetics. So in, in that sense, I think there is a very American center to the project of poetry here. But I also think that's a center that's constantly shifting. And, and that perhaps is most interesting to me is the margin of what we call American poetry and the lineage of that and where it's headed when voices like mine and many, many other diasporic voices enter into the conversation, both in terms of the content of work, the subject of work, and the way in which language is engaged. You know, if you read through my work, there, is, there are smatterings of Arabic there are pieces of Coptic, there are pieces of ancient Egyptian language all within the work. So the language itself, although it's all happening through a very American linguistic vehicle in many ways. Um, and so I, I think that becomes a very interesting conversation, how one's diasporic relationship as a human being shapes the work and therefore shapes the larger trajectory of what we might call American poetry.
So do you have a sense of a people? And it, this, is a, this is an interesting issue. I've been really playing around with this idea, which is rooted in an anecdote that I heard when I was in, in, in Scotland just under a year ago. And I was at the um, Burns Center, and um, there's this you know, fantastic um, setup there for, 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 for Robert Burns. And um, there's a little account that is on a plaque that, that describes a moment at his funeral when a kid, uh, an 11-year-old, I think it, is, it was said, um, stands up and looks at his father and says, you know, who, who will be our poet now? Right. And, 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 and of course, it's a quaint articulation, but it's a profound articulation because contained in that question is the, 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 the relationship between poet and our. In other words, the kind of expectation that a poet becomes, speaks for a people or, or is a poet for a people. Forget speaking for, but represents something for a people. And it's enviable. I mean, the idea that yeah. that if I'm dead, somebody, a kid is going to come and say, well, we'll be up for it now. But it's complicated because who, who says that? For whom? You know, and, and how much is that important? So I raise that because I'm raising it with many poets that I ask. And, and when who, who becomes your hour? I mean, do, do you have an hour? Do you, do, do you think about an hour? Do you think about who that kid would be? If, if speaking of you, in other words, and, and therefore the corollary of that is to say, do you think about the question of who do I speak for? I'm not entirely sure how consciously I think about this, but it exists in the mind of any writer. Well, I'll bring up the issue of language here. It would be, I would be hard pressed to argue that I hold that space for Egyptians for the plain and simple reason that I write in a language outside of the mainstream of the 85 million people who populate the country of Egypt. And so in that sense, it can't be our, because my only connection there may be through translation. Um, and, and that complicates things, of course. And so in that sense, the hour is diasporic. And I think that actually opens up a conversation that moves far beyond the idea of nationality. So if I have an hour, and if I, I can be so egotistical as to try and claim it. Um, I, I think it's a, it's a much more multifaceted, diasporic, and complicated community of many origins and, and many beliefs and many ilks that is playing on the margins much like I am, that knows its own root, that has its connection to a specific place but lives outside of it. And, and we become a tribe of it our own in that tribe. way. Yeah, it becomes a tribe. Okay, so now I'll come to the other reason that we connect so well is that you have a freakish knowledge of reggae music that is <laughs> disturbing to me, <laughs> I have to say. It's very disturbing to me because only a few people I know have this sort of encyclopedic knowledge, not just knowing the music, but being able to reference, being able to end lines and so on and so forth. And I know it's not a casual engagement, and this idea of diaspora is really tied into that conversation. So let's see if we can find our way through this engagement with reggae. Reggae um, as this phenomenal force and, and its relation to your own work, sense of self and, and positioning and this idea of the diaspora, the idea of the diaspora. This is what, as you well know, many of your own folks from Jamaica might call outer national. So I came to reggae music as anybody of my generation likely would, through Bob Marley. 
and it was, of course, as a, as a writer in particular, the lyrics of Bob Marley that stood out to me. But I think initially, as, as perhaps a, a kind of pre-adolescent young man in this country, listening to this music and then growing through it and, and learning much more about roots reggae, I was struck by several things in the lyricism. One is the way in which it engages this very idea we're talking about, this idea of a kind of pan-Africanist diaspora. But the thing that personally linked me to it was the recognition of so many of the lyrics of, of Bob and then many others as being deeply and unquestionably familiar. Um, and I think at an early age, I, I began to realize the familiarity with that lyricism came from my upbringing in the Coptic church. And so many of Bob's lyrics, for example, come out of the book of Psalms, yeah. which is a very important set of readings in the Coptic community. And so I, I had a very intimate and very kind of ethereal and, and homely, if you will, connection to the lyric that drew me. But then it began to articulate my own experience in the world outside of just the kind of spiritual framework. And, and I think this is where I first got hooked in. And then, of course, beginning to discover the narratives of Rastafari and how this connection connects very much to my own personal community, the Coptic community, right? I mean, Haile Selassie was a member of the Coptic Orthodox Church. And so th there were all of these really interesting intersections and, and these ways in which, again, over and over listening to this music, feeling that it was familiar. I could smell the frankincense of the Coptic Church in listening to this music. And that, that is a feeling that I think perhaps is more a sense of home than any nation or any land, is this kind of spiritual sense of home. And so there was an immediate connection there. And I, I never found this with another music. I mean, I'm, I'm of the hip-hop generation in this, this country and, and have, you know, deep appreciation for hip-hop and have listened to, you know, quite a bit of hip-hop, but could never engage it uh, the way that I, that I have reggae music. And in fact, I've had quite a few pretty significant arguments with, uh, with many of my peers on the, the virtues of reggae versus hip-hop, which is... Of course, a silly binary because we know reggae wins every time. But <laughs> the, the, the truth of it is that that connection, and, and you speak about this in your own work, this idea of the reggae aesthetic, which encompasses the spiritual, what we can call the political and, and the sensual, those things that are very significant kinds of essences of, of how we define ourselves as a people. Um, and so I think... That's how I, I grew into it, and it's, it's, never, it's never felt foreign in that way. And I think if I have any knowledge of it, it and, and it feels organic, it is precisely because of that. I mean, I very much believe, even though reggae music came out of a, a, a very specific context and place, its aspirations were to reach people in the way that it has reached me, and that is the power and the beauty of reggae. That becomes a, a fascinating way of, of finding connections. And I, I like, there's, there's a rich vein of, of tradition and history in the idea of diaspora, especially related to Africa. A diaspora that, at least in our, in our present sort of preoccupation, a necessary preoccupation, is a diaspora, a forced diaspora, the diaspora of the Middle Passage and so on. 
Uh, but we, we know of, of diasporas even before those forced diasporas. But, but in a real sense, this is, this is a big part of it. So what I want to rush back now to is, is to talk a little bit about the position then of um, when we talk about Africa and we talk about African poetics and African poetry, in a sense, you become, like I do become, a kind of representation of that in, 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 in an environment where I don't think African poetry gets a tremendous amount of attention. So one of the things I'm, I'm, I'm interested in, in you're your talking about is what has been your engagement in, in African poetry um, um, in general and also specifically in terms of Egypt? My inclination towards this stems out of a place that I'm sure has much to do with my own upbringing and background of really being a pretty anti-nationalist human being. That the, the idea of nationalism is not a particularly interesting project to me. And again, I think that this is, this is something that many people in various forms of diaspora would, would agree with and, and it would resonate with them. And so I think the idea of an Africa becomes very interesting to me precisely because of its multiplicity, precisely because of the ways in which there are both incredible connections and intersections and radical differences, but somehow we can still engage in the larger idea. I suppose my first hook into this comes from the larger idea of a Pan-Africanism. And in the narrative of Pan-Africanism, as has been explored through scholarship and literature and other means, Egypt plays a very central, complicated, and often problematic role. And so I become implicated in this if I choose to enter into the conversation in ways that I find fascinating both as a, as a writer and as a human being. And I think it is important to tell that story outside of more traditional colonial narratives which have bifurcated the continent of Africa. And so this is where I probably first enter into the space. The idea of a separation of Africa from north and south based exclusively on very problematic racial assumptions made by colonial masters and that defining the conversation is something that I resist naturally. And then, of course, as I've was talking about earlier, seeing various connections so that one might put the Egyptian context, and, and I'm not arguing that this is right or wrong, in an Arab framework, and, and that works for some people. For me, that doesn't work because my inclination towards, say, the Ethiopian community or the Eritrean community through religion and various forms of history is much more nuanced much more intimate than it is with, say, someone from Lebanon. And so there's an immediate connection within that notion of a, a larger Africanism just by virtue of relationships. I mean, the Ethiopian community of Ethiopia and the Coptic community of, of, of Egypt have had a relationship with one another for thousands and thousands of years. And we know that there has been, you know, incredible connections between the ancient empires and, and even to the present day. And so that's one of the ways that I enter into it. But then I think there are larger issues at play here that are political, that are, are as I've said, anti-colonial in various ways, that have to do with a celebration of a diversity of a group of people, redefining the notion of an African, 
um, and, and looking at the complexity of what Africa is and, and who Africa is. And we see it in the literature, if we're to read, you know, broadly across the continent, we see these connections in the literature. While there are obviously very specific kinds of, of elements of, say, modern poetry in West Africa that differ from, you know, East Africa, as an example, there are still very interesting connections that I think are worthy of exploration, not to create a singular narrative, but to create a more complicated narrative that that pushes against the kind of nationalistic boundaries that have not traditionally, but in, in more in a more modern sense, defined us. And Egypt becomes a very interesting example in this. What do we make of the Nubian community of Egypt, which is a distinct community? It's a distinct ethnic community. It's a distinct language community that has also a very old relationship with the Coptic community, a different relationship with the Muslim community that they are now a part of, um, that has a relationship with what we now call the north of Sudan. You know, these borders, all of these things are part of a colonial mapping when, when I believe that we move through these spaces much more fluidly than perhaps we currently understand them. There are some obvious things I think about Egyptian literature and so on. There are a number of major, but there are mainly fiction writers that that emerge out of it. And when we think of Egyptian um, literature, um, and it's it's clearly a post-colonial literature in in many ways. The connections with the post-colonial sensibilities is is there. But what does a, an, an English-speaking American person say? Okay, let me see what I can find out about Egyptian poetry. Where, where do you start, and what 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 kinds of conversations have to start taking place in in that? To begin with, there's not a whole lot. The translations are very limited, and I think you've you've pinpointed something that's really critical here, and that is that Egyptians in the in the contemporary and modern sense are much more engaged in the novel than they are in poetry. And this breaks down in an interesting way in examining a larger sense of Arabic language poetics because all contemporary Egyptian writers write in the Arabic language. Their relationship then is not necessarily engaged as much with those of sub-Saharan Africa, but other members of North Africa and then over into the Levant and that area. So because we, we tend to examine things by language classification. And in that sense... Palestinians actually kind of take the crown in poetry, and Egyptians are are much more known for their their fiction. Um, of course, there are many many Egyptians writing poetry, and so. But for for an American reader, one would begin with translation, obviously. Um, and you know, one translator I would name immediately is Khaled Matawa, who himself is Libyan, but has translated a great deal of Arabic language poetry, including. Um, the work of Aman Mersal, for example, who is a contemporary Egyptian poet and who is probably one of the better known poets in the English language. Having, she writes in Arabic but having been translated in English. There are a few volumes out there. They're uneven. And, and I think this is an area that's newly being discovered because translation, as, as much as it is beginning to proliferate the American landscape, is still a very new thing in this country. I mean, we don't have a rich and long history of translation, especially from non-European languages. And so in that sense, they're, they're slim pickings. When you say some of the work is uneven, is it uneven because of 
sort of unaccomplished translation, um, or, is, or is, is the unevenness sort of built into the into the into the work that is emerging? I mean, is one able to tell that? That's a great question. I, I mean, I would argue it's probably a bit of both, um, and and it's it's out of the impetus for writing too. I mean, poems occur for many reasons in many contexts, and sometimes that can be translated beautifully, and other times it can't. So I, I think it, it depends on the particular set of poems. I mean, there was a volume that came out some years ago, I believe, from the University of Arkansas Press called Angry Voices, and it's, a, it's a, an anthology of contemporary Egyptian writers and modern Egyptian writers who are slightly political in their implication, I suppose, of, of poetry. But, you know, other than that, there's not, there's not a great deal of work out there. And again, I think it's because the project of translation is a significant one, as you well know. This is something that, that requires an immense amount of labor. So if someone has the skills of a Khalid Matawa, they have to choose wisely. Right? They're going to, and, and they have to fall in love with the work in order to kind of carry forward that labor. Um, and in this case, if you're working out of Arabic, I would... This might sound like a real diss to my people, but I, I would argue that there are perhaps stronger choices to engage first. Um, that said, there is a very interesting growing trend of a strain of political poetry coming out of Egypt in the post kind of revolution moment. And whether that will kind of fizzle out or build into something stronger time will tell. But I think there, there is a way in which the youth are beginning to engage the art form to talk about their own specific context and the moment in which they're living in. Um, this is a basic question, but are there poetry festivals, poetry events? I mean, is there a scene that exists in places like Cairo and so on that, or, or, you know, in terms of literary events and so on and so forth that, that are international and that maybe even focus on that, 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 that you might know of? The ones I know of are less international and perhaps a little more local, and there are. And, and I think one of the things that we do see that is really, I think, important is a very deep engagement between the writers and the visual artists. So they often congregate in the same spaces. I think there are, in, in a city like Cairo, there are more artistic hubs where you may have a novelist, a poet, a painter, a journalist, you know, these kinds of people gathering in, in a sculptor in the same spaces. And in that way, I think there's something very fertile happening in, in terms of an engagement across various art forms. As you know, we, we've been working together on this um, African Poetry Book Foundation and Fund um, and trying to, to publish African poets, to create an, a, a press, essentially, that, that publishes African poetry, which, is, it, it's, which doesn't exist other than what we've started to do. How do you see that working in the context, first of all, I mean, the broader context we can talk about, but in the context of Egyptian poetry? In other words, is there a place for that idea of bringing that poetry into English-speaking centers, you know, the UK and the US? Do you see that having an impact on, 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 on what happens in terms of the production in such places? Well, I, I would hope so, and I think that this begins really with a conversation of identity. As we've created this African poetry book series, one must view themselves as Africa <laughs> right. in order to kind of enter into the conversation. And that 
is something I, I don't have a clear answer of, but something I would be very interested in, in because exploring. Because it's not a straight given in the terms of Egypt, right? No, it's, yeah. it's, I mean, Egypt is a borderland, yeah. right? And it, and it sits on the cusp. And so it depends on one's relation to it. It's it, the one's own historical viewing of the place. All of these things play into how one relates to that space and whether they see it as an African space or not. And I think it, it often becomes either very binary or very interchangeable. Right. Um, it's, but Egypt it's, is it's, happy it's, to win the Africa football that's, club. That's right. Because that's a big deal, right? Of course. You know, yeah. I mean, when, it, when it comes to, to soccer, we'll, <laughs> we'll play anywhere we can. Right? Um, and, but this is, this is actually a great example of the complexity of this, yeah. right? On, on one hand, there are conversations of a kind of pan-Arabism, but they're playing in the African Cup, right? So, and, and, I, I, and I don't actually think that's a contradiction. I think it's a complexity that one needs yeah. to explore. And, and again, I think this, this depends on one's identity, one's relationship to space, and one's relationship to literature, and I think that becomes very important. My own relationship to literature pulls me in a, in a more African direction. Um, my, my counterpart could very easily be pulled in a more Arabist direction. And so that has to do also with what the language and the literature around you is doing and how it's speaking to you. Yeah. Um, and for me, this also has to do, again, with the issue of diaspora, that in this country I have been far more embraced by an African group of writers than I have any other group of writers who have related to my work. And, and the subject matter of my work speaks to them and vice versa in a way that has created a very organic and natural relationship that may not be the case for another Egyptian writer. There may be other Egyptian writers who find a different conversation happening. I think our goal then is to make sure that there is space enough for all of those right. conversations right. All to those cultivate in the ways yeah. they need to. Yeah. And so so great segue then to talk a little bit about your work because I know your most recent work which you which you've been which you've been working on takes you fully and sort of powerfully back into contemporary present day Egypt and you explore that. Your earlier work and so on also has that engagement and and you you seem to to take strength in diaspora. And diaspora as in Leaving, but also returning that whole dialogue and and back and forth. Um, so, but but how does that affect you in terms of aesthetics and in terms of influences and the the kind of poetics that seem to to engage you and, and excite you? My aesthetics become informed by that very relationship, which I find incredibly exciting. I I would actually find it very stringent to feel I'm a part of a nationalist tradition of writing and and have to either work in its vein or somehow react to it. And I think, again, sitting on the margins in various ways, I, I can steal, as any good writer should, from various spaces. Um, and so I think all of that works its way in, including reggae music. I, I see my work absolutely working within a larger reggae aesthetic. Within, and, and content has to do with this as well. The focus of the poem the focus of what the work is trying to achieve and what is being implicated in the work also shapes the aesthetic. Um, and so that, that conversation is an interesting one for me, that, that diasporic conversation of how 
one finds themselves moving back and forth between spaces, both physical and ideological. And I'm very interested in history. I mean, this is also a, a significant part of my work. My last book, Seasons of Lotus, Seasons of Bone, for example, engages this idea of an ancient Egyptian past in a contemporary Egyptian space. I'm very interested in that trajectory and that incredible contradiction that exists when you go to contemporary Egypt, where you see these, these amazing ancient spaces amongst a very contemporary third world reality and how these things collide, um, both physically in the, in the ecology, in the land, and ideologically in people's thinking. So, so that's a great kind of introduction for you to to actually read something from 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 your work. Don't you hate that kind of stuff? So you've said something brilliant, and now you're gonna have to prove it. <laughs> so if you could if you could read um, some of your work, because one of the things I I really enjoy about your work, of course, is the music that is built into it and the complexity. I'll begin with this poem that quite directly speaks about the idea of place, and it's called In This Place. In this place. From the air, you understand, topography is a child's feet dragging through the sand, the coral heads of the Red Sea dotting a map from Africa to the Levant. In between the sea and the rise of Sinai, the Nile and the streets of Cairo, the air hangs heavy with trepidation, calling for the weaver to save the sky with cotton yarn and indigo dye. We promise ourselves that this world will sustain us, that the spring will not dry before our children's thirst. We run our fingers on sandstone, speak stories in rivets and impressions. We cup our hands for water and pray the birds will learn to drink. The architecture of the streets we rise from is shaped from fragility and resilience. The peddler's kofia, woven with understanding, wind can kill or save in this desert. Beneath the scarves which cover these furrows, lives colored by the farmer's plow, we wonder why the children's eyes have grown so large, igniting this charcoal landscape. So for me, this is a perfect kind of example of the, the, the thing that we call the reggae aesthetic, the, 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 the present sort of engaged political sense of space and, and, and identity, the sensuality of, 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 of the language, and of course, the, the spiritual location of the work. Um, this is a real, a, re, a real value. Maybe we could do one more piece and, um, and, and wrap up with that. I'd love to hear another poem from you. Night Song Let it be night, that the arrows of day be shadowed and the almond candle of your eyes shine night. Read every word, honey on the wound. Let it be day in the open river, that mountain goat may step to rock like I step to you. Rock of ages, psalm song, palm line, water curl. I give myself to this word, commit to eternity, traced by slender shadows, ask for nothing. Still riddled by the bullets of Mogadishu, Darfur, distance, political bombast, the son of diaspora learns to live in shade without the battle of journey, graze slender. 
We make ourselves heart travelers, live near water and find the longest star. If there is beauty here, we drink it, mouth full of sand, and on the silt of our tongues comes the tree of words blossoming into breath, paradise. That was Matthew Shinoda reading his poem, Night Song, and speaking with Kwame Dawes. This program was recorded at the Poetry Foundation in Chicago on March 1, 2013, as part of International Poets in Conversation, and was sponsored by the Harriet Monroe Poetry Institute's Poets in the World series. The poems read by Matthew Shinoda come from his book, Seasons of Lotus, Seasons of Bone, published in 2009 by Boa Editions. Shinoda's first collection of poems, Somewhere Else, was named a debut book of the year by Poets and Writers magazine. Kwame Daw's most recent poetry collection, Duppy Conqueror, is published by Copper Canyon Press. Other books by Kwame Daw's include Bruised Totem, Gomer's Song, Impossible Flying, Wisteria, and Hope's Hospice. Bob Marley, Lyrical Genius, which Daw's wrote in 2002, is considered the authoritative study on the lyrics of Bob Marley. You can learn more about Matthew Shinoda and Kwame Dawes and read some of their work by visiting poetryfoundation.org, where you'll also find articles by and about poets, an online archive of more than 10,000 poems, the Harriet blog about poetry, to which Kwame Dawes contributes, the complete back issues of Poetry Magazine, and other audio programs to download. I'm Ed Herman. Thanks for listening to Poetry Lectures from poetryfoundation.org.